We stand for the reading of the Gospel. We read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, beginning at verse 17. He went down with them and stood on a level place with a large crowd of his disciples and a large number of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, as well as from the coastal area of Tyre and Sidon. These people came to listen to him and to be healed of their diseases. Those who were troubled by unclean spirits were also cured. The whole crowd crept trying to touch him because power was going out from him and healing them all. He lifted up his eyes to his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, because yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, because you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, because you will laugh. Blessed are you whenever people hate you and whenever they exclude and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because of this. Your reward is great in heaven. The fact is, their fathers constantly did the same things to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, because you are receiving your comfort now. Woe to you who are well fed now, because you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, because you will be mourning and weeping. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, because that is how their fathers constantly treated the false prophets. This is the Gospel of our Lord, we pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Your fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, who lived in poverty and went hungry and was mocked and ridiculed and persecuted and finally murdered for us. The words before us this morning function as the introduction to what is commonly known as Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. You may notice if, you, if you're familiar with Matthew's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that there appear to be a lot of similarities between these two sermons. If they are describing the exact same event, it's hard to tell. We can't really say for certain. But what we can say for certain today, based on Luke's account, is that Jesus is categorically stating that it is better to be poor than rich. Better to be starving than satisfied. Better to be sad than happy. Better to be persecuted than popular. Let's be honest. It sounds like absolute nonsense. That doesn't make any sense. Who would prefer being poor over rich? And hungry over satisfied and persecuted over popular. Let's be honest about something else. Most of what we do here in the church is regarded by most people as utter nonsense, right? You bring little newborn babies here and we stand over them and what do we say about them? This is a sinner who is dead before the eyes of God. And there are other days where we, we roll a casket in here or we set an urn on a table and we stand over those dead people and what do we say about them? They're only sleeping. We pour regular lukewarm tap water into that baptismal font and we call it the fountain of life. We, we use regular bread and wine and we say that it is actually Jesus' true body and blood. You believe that when a man stands up here and forgives your, name, your sins here on earth, that they are also forgiven before God in heaven. Most of the world thinks that everything we do here is absolute sheer nonsense. 
The point is that it's not about what you or I or anyone else sees or experiences or feels about these things. It's all about what God says. God says that newborn infants are dead in sin and that dead believers are really alive. God says that baptism works new life and the forgiveness of sins. God says that this bread and this wine are Jesus' body and blood. God sent out his disciples, his apostles, to forgive the sins of the world, to forgive the sins of people who believe it, to tell people, for Jesus' sake, your sins are forgiven. That's what God has said. And what God says can never fail, even if we can't see it, feel it, or experience it. We can't question it. Not from the one who in Genesis said, let there be, and the universe came into existence. Not the one who promised hundreds of years before Jesus ever showed up on this earth, I'm going to send you a Messiah. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to make it so that the blind can see and the lame can walk. He's going to cast out demons. He's going to heal diseases. And Jesus did it. So why would we ever doubt that what God says is true? That may be fine, you might be thinking. But right here, Jesus is not talking about these things, these churchly things that we, that we probably think about maybe a couple hours a week. No, he's talking about our wealth, our health, our happiness, maybe our mental status. He's talking about our social standing in the community. These aren't just things that happen at church. These are things that occupy all of our time. Every minute of every day, we're thinking about these things. And what Jesus says about these things seems to be total nonsense. doesn't seem to be good at all to be poor and hungry and sad and persecuted. At least not according to the standards of the world. So what is Jesus driving at here, telling his disciples that it's, it's better to be the opposite of what the world thinks? Well, consider the context. In those first verses that set the stage, people are coming from all over the region, even Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are way, way up north along the Mediterranean coast. Coming from all over. Why? Well, they are coming to hear Jesus, but primarily you get the feeling that they're coming to receive his divine power. They were touching him to be healed. They were looking at him to cast out their demons. They wanted Jesus to make their lives on this earth better, to heal their bodies and their minds. And as Jesus is watching this, and Jesus' disciples are watching this, he understands my disciples might be getting the wrong idea about why I came to this earth and what their lives after I leave are going to be like. You can understand what they might be thinking, right? What they might be tempted to think. This is awesome. We have Jesus who can, who can heal all of our diseases, who can cast out our demons, who with the snap of his fingers can provide enough food for the rest of our life. This is great. Jesus understands that they could be thinking that, and so he's bound and determined to correct their understanding of his mission and their lives. And he, he basically tells them, it's, it's not what you think. This Christian life, following me, it, it, it's not what you think. It's not what it looks like right now. The Bible is perfectly clear that Jesus did not come to make us all wealthy and healthy and happy and popular. The Bible is utterly clear about that. 
And yet that's what many people believe, that Jesus should come to make us happy and healthy and wealthy and popular, to turn this world into an, a utopia, or at least our lives, right? We who take the time to come and worship Jesus, shouldn't he at least make our lives a little bit better so it's obvious to the rest of the world? This is real. He is really the Savior. He is really the one in control. Well, it's not that Jesus couldn't do that. It's not that he couldn't create a utopia on this world. It's not that he tried and failed. He could do that. He could make our lives perfect. He could heal of all of our diseases. He could take away of all of our psychological stresses. He could give us enough money so that we don't have to worry about working or saving or anything for the rest of our lives. Well, that sounds kind of good. I'll take that. I'll take that, Jesus. Why doesn't he do that? Well, for the same reason that he kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden all the way back in the beginning. The only way to really understand what our lives as Christians are like today is to go back to the beginning and, and see what happened there. You know as well as I do that God gave Adam one simple command. You can eat from all these trees in the garden. Just don't eat from the one. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, Adam ate. And he brought death into the world. Not, not just the death that consists of the separation of body and soul, but, but the true death that consists of separation from God. Mankind was separated from God. Spiritually, first of all, but also physically. The other consequence that Adam brought was, was this. The man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now so that he does not reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the soil from which he had been taken. Does that sound like a good thing? That God kicked Adam and Eve out of the perfect paradise of Eden. It was. It was. God separated them from, from the tree of life so that they wouldn't eat of it and live in this now fallen world forever. It was good because it was a, a, a concrete reminder that all things are not right anymore. And you know those other curses that God gave like you're going to have to work with thorns and thistles, making a living, scraping a living out of this earth is not going to be easy, that childbirth is going to be painful, that, that men and women are just not ever going to get along, that believers and unbelievers will always be at odds with each other, always hating each other. All of those curses were intended by God to show Adam and Eve that everything is not right. And the problem is not out there. The problem is in here. He sent them out of the garden, ironically enough, to bring them back to himself in repentance. So that they would, instead of trusting their own strength, would fall on his grace, just like Paul said, when I am weak, when I can barely scrape a living out of this world, when my relationship with my spouse is not perfect, when I don't think I'm going, my retirement savings is going to last, when I feel alienated because of my Christian faith in a world that is hostile to Christians, when I am weak, that's when I am strong. Because that is when I return to my Lord for strength and hope and forgiveness. 
But why doesn't God just snap his fingers and, and make our lives perfect? Why doesn't he take away all of our problems, even when we pray week after week after week, Lord, help me? Why doesn't he do that? But for the same reason he did what he did for Adam and Eve, to humble us, to bring us to our knees, to draw us back to himself in repentance. It may feel like when your life is falling apart around you that God is pushing you away, but He's pushing you away in order to bring you back. He's showing you how weak you truly are, how much you truly need to depend on Him. That's why the Lord doesn't make this an earthly utopia. That's why He doesn't make our lives perfect, because we would get the wrong idea, wouldn't we? We would get the idea that everything between us and God is right. If your lives were perfect, I don't think, if my life was perfect, I wouldn't be here. How would I see my need for God, for Christ, if my life was perfect? If I was perfectly healthy? If I couldn't feel the cold breath of death on my neck just like you do every day as our bodies fall apart and our friends and our family members die right in front of our eyes? How else would we know how much we needed Christ? Because Christ didn't come into this world to make us happy, healthy, wealthy, and satisfied. He came to do so much more than that. He came to reconcile us to God. And he did it. He did it. He, he came and he gathered up the broken pieces of all the commandments that you and I have just shattered with our words and our tongues and our actions. He came to to take the, the sin and guilt that we had earned and, and hang on a cross under God's wrath to pay for it. And now he has. And he hasn't won for us a better life here and now. He's won true life for us. True life in God's kingdom forever. True life in a kingdom where there are riches beyond your wildest imagination. A kingdom where where there's an endless, all-you-can-eat buffet every single day that's hosted by Jesus himself. Uh, a kingdom where sin, death, and the devil are not even a memory anymore. That's true life. That's what Jesus came to win for us and what he did win for us. But then there's the problem that the devil likes to get in the way. The devil doesn't want us to recognize that what true life is is having peace and harmony with God. The devil wants us to believe that, that true life, that real life is, is being happy and content and popular here in this world. There are two things the devil wants to do. He either wants to fill us up with, with so many riches and, and so much satisfaction, so much happiness and so much popularity in our lives that we really forget we don't sense how broken we really are. We don't sense how our relationship with God is ruined. And I think you can see that on a very concrete level when you look at celebrities, when you look at Hollywood. They've got it all. You know what they're missing? A relationship with their God. So either wants to do that, either wants to make us think, I think I'm okay. God seems to be blessing me very well physically. I think that must mean that I'm spiritually right with God, which that is no proof of. Or, he wants us to be so consumed uh, with, with gaining things in this world, with gaining happiness and health and wealth, that he, he wants us to look at Jesus like some kind of a cosmic genie, uh, a divine 
vending machine that he's just come to give us everything we want for our earthly happiness. But that's not why Jesus came. Even if Jesus gave us all that stuff, we wouldn't really be happy. We would still have short, miserable lives in this world, tarnished by sin and hatred and hostility with other people, and then, sadly, we would be forever separated from God. So that's why Jesus tells this shocking story. I I thought about using the term woke, because that's really what Jesus is doing here, right? He is awakening us to the reality. It's so easy for us to be deluded into thinking, if, if I have everything I want, if I'm happy, healthy, wealthy, and popular, God must be happy with me. Whereas our other two lessons prove, your outward circumstances don't tell you anything about how you stand with God. Your bank, you cannot look at your bank account to find out whether God is happy with you. You cannot look at your body and, and, and understand whether it's healthy or, or not, how God feels about you. Your outward circumstances are not an accurate measure of where you stand with God. So what is? That's the question, right? How do you know where you stand with God? Right there. That's where we should have been. But God hung his own son on there instead to pay for all of our sins. That's objective, concrete evidence of how God feels towards you. He hung his beloved son on that cross instead of you so that he could reconcile you as his beloved children. Again, that that turning things upside down, right? God pushed his only perfect son away into the depths of hell on that cross, abandoned him to the fires of hell so that he could draw us to himself restore us and reconcile us to himself. What an amazing thing. Jesus has done it all, right? He's he's made us God's beloved children. He has lived a perfect life that he now credits to our account. He's taken all that sin, all that shame, all that guilt away. There's, There's no reason for you to walk out those doors guilty or worried or stressed out about anything. That's all taken away. Right now, in fact, God looks at you, and he's just as happy as he was when he first created Adam and Eve and looked at them and said, this, these people are very good in my sight. Imagine that you were all powerful. You could give the the people you love literally anything. What would you give them? Would you give them all the money they ever wanted, all the food they ever wanted, all the happiness they ever wanted? Would you make sure that they were always very popular? In this world that is infested with sin, where the devil is hunting us every single day, would you do that? No, I think if you truly love someone, the thing you would want to give them is a one-way ticket out of this fallen world to a place where there's no such thing as sin death, or the devil. Well, that's what Jesus is telling us that God has done for us now. In Jesus, God has given us that one-way ticket out of this fallen world, out of this broken world, to his side in heaven. There is no better gift that could ever be given than a ticket out of this world to heaven. And that's what we have in Jesus. In Martin Luther's day, 
when people just had to really deal with and, and face, I mean, live through, live through plagues and, and disease and, and famines and pandemics. For them, there was no hiding in your basement hoping that science will come up with the answer. There was no ability to just lock yourself in your house for two years. They had to live through it. They had to deal with it. But what they would say during those days is that in the midst of life, we seem to be surrounded by death. Now that's what the devil would like you to think. He would like you to think this is the life. This is as good as it gets. You better eat, drink, and be merry, as merry as you can, because tomorrow you die and it's all over with. That's what the devil would like you to think. Martin Luther turned that upside down. He said, no, 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 no. This is the reality. In the midst of death, we are surrounded by life. This world is full of death. Sin, death, and the devil are hunting us, chasing us down everywhere we go. But in the midst of this deathly world, the Lord has given us life through His Son. And He gives us signs of that life too, doesn't He? He gives us baptism, which gives us new birth into God's family. He gives us a forgiveness of sins that strengthens us day after day after day. He gives us the Lord's Supper, which strengthens us for eternal life. This Christian life of ours, it may not be what we think, but it's far, far better. Amen.